Are you offering your clients the experience they really want? Or are you offering them what you think they want? Join hosts Laura Gregg and David Partain from FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds as they talk with a variety of industry experts and advisors, just like you, about their latest industry research to help you develop the flexible mindset you need to rise above the crowd. Hello, and welcome to the Flexible Advisor Podcast. It's me again, Laura Gregg, and I'm here, of course, with my co-host, David Partain. Happy Friday, David. How are you doing? Happy Friday, Laura. I am doing well. I had a cold earlier in the week, but I am on the mend and ready for this podcast. Yes, you no longer sound like Wolfman Jack, and a prize <laughs> goes out to any of our listeners who can tell us who Wolfman Jack is. That's right. <laughs> so, David, I am super excited about our conversations today, and I feel it's going to be a very powerful one that will resonate with advisors, of course, we hope so, but I also think it can resonate for many of the clients that they're serving. This episode is for parents with children of all ages and the financial advisors that serve them. Now, you, David, are a parent of five now grown adults. Yes. And I know you've got a lot of thoughts about what we'll be discussing today. Yeah, in fact, I, I do. And that's why I'm so excited about this episode. But one thing I've always learned, I've learned is that you're never not a parent. It's, no. <laughs> it is, you're always a parent. That's true. That's true. So we are delighted to welcome back Sarah Newcomb to the podcast. Sarah, for our longtime listeners, you may remember her. She joined us in early 2020 at the dawn of the Flexible Advisor podcast to talk about how advisors could better counsel their clients during times of market uncertainty. And we were right in the beginning of the pandemic at that point. And on that episode, we talked with Sarah about FOMO, the fear of missing out. It was at a time when the virtual conferencing companies were skyrocketing and many folks were rushing to get in and grab a piece of that momentum growth, while other clients were wanting to take all of their assets out of the market because of the deep decline early on in the pandemic. Now, Sarah provided some fantastic behavioral coaching advice for advisors to use with their clients, no matter where they were on the risk spectrum. But since that time, Sarah uh, has started her own business called Thrive Financial Empowerment. And she's still coaching advisors on how best to help them keep their clients from financial sabotage. And her behavioral work and background in psychology makes her so well suited for this. And I know we're going to come away from today's conversation uh, both more self-aware and also knowledgeable about how we might possibly be able to encourage more clarity in how we think of our financial roles and as a parent. And Sarah, thank you so much for coming back and congratulations on your new firm. Oh, thank you. I am having so much fun with it. That's awesome. I know that starting your starting a firm is a lot of work. So to hear you say that you're enjoying it, that's <laughs> half the battle, I think. 
And of course, it is a delight to welcome you back. When we last spoke, you were working as the Director of Financial Psychology at Morningstar. So tell us about Thrive, why you decided to become an entrepreneur, and what else has changed since we last spoke? Yeah, so Thrive is focused mostly around my passion for financial education Mm -hmm. and my desire to help people who are smart and hardworking and ambitious and stuck because of unexamined beliefs or unconscious biases or all the different ways that we can get in our own way financially. I want to help people get out of their own way financially. So I'm focusing a lot on empowerment-based financial education and Mm -hmm. creating content and tools and resources for people to uh, build lives they love with the resources that they have. Um, So really focusing mainly on the mid to low income households. But I'm also doing corporate consulting, um, helping large advisory firms to incorporate behavioral science into their discovery process and other uh, small projects here and there, some research. Um, So I'm doing a lot of different things that I love. But the main thrust of Thrive for me is really in helping people to understand those unconscious ways that they may be sabotaging their own goals and help them to have healthier financial behaviors by changing the way that they think. So Sarah, we know you have the expertise. We've we've known you for a while. And I would love for us to also learn specific to financial advisors, how they can tap into that expertise. So tell us about what you have to offer them and some of the problems you've actually been helping advisors solve. Yeah. So a lot of it focuses on learning techniques, communication techniques for uh, going deeper in the discovery process specifically understanding not just giving people great prompting questions, but understanding some of the really simple, applicable frameworks from psychology that that are really universal to all people everywhere. Things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. How do you apply what we know from some basic psychological frameworks of human motivation to help you understand not just the questions to ask, but then what to listen for. What are you mm. listening for when you ask somebody about, you know, for for example, financial self-sabotage is definitely a thing. And it happens when there are two or more fundamental needs in conflict with one another inside a person or inside a household. And so you can take situations like overspending, oversaving, and couples who are in conflict or about priorities. Three really, really different behaviors or types of scenario, but you can coach healthier thinking and healthier behavior using the same framework, Maslow's hierarchy of needs for all of those scenarios. So I teach advisors about really simple frameworks from psychology, not just how they apply to why people do what they do, but how do you then put that into practice in your questioning, in your listening, and in your coaching so that you can feel confident in asking these questions and confident that you're not going to open up a jar of worms that you don't know what to deal with once you do start asking these questions. 
Wow. <laughs> when I reached out to you, um, I, I reached out because I saw an article that you had written and it reminded me that it had been way too long since we spoke. And I'm so glad we were able to reconnect because of it. And the title, I believe, was a personal note to all the single parents and caretakers trying to make ends meet. Now, in this article, you really were candid. You shared a lot about your personal experience of being a single mother, how you work to make ends meet, and how through that hard work and probably most important, the diligence and the consistency, you were able to meet your financial goals. I'm hoping that you would tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write that story and um, how has it been received? Yes, well, it's been received really well. Um, people, I think it definitely hit a, a chord with people, especially it was really nice to get notes from other single parents um, who definitely felt seen. Um, and that made me feel seen. But what inspired me to write it was actually the transition out of single parenthood that, like I mentioned earlier, I, I got remarried uh, last month. And so for the first time in 10 years, I have a partner um, to help with reaching my financial goals where, you know, I got divorced while I was still a PhD student with a young child. She was about, um, I think she was seven. And so there, I was entering this new stage of life where I was actually able to leapfrog uh, you know, take a huge leap forward on my on the timeline of my financial plan because my financial plan had me being single for the rest of my life, and I had I had planned it based on you know okay if if I'm the only uh, resource I have, how am I going to build this life that I really want? And so I had been on that path and um, was doing great on that path, but then to suddenly be, I, it almost feels unfair. That now I'm like, wow, now I don't have to do it all on my own. You know, my my net worth just jumped because I married somebody who is also financially responsible and has been a single parent himself for 10 years and has worked really hard to build what he could from his own resources. And so to combine our lives financially, it really, I wanted to sort of honor how hard I had worked. It was sort of putting a little bit of closure on the period of my life where I really, it was hard. It required a lot of sacrifice as parenthood does, period. And mm. it's hard for to, for dual income households. I'm sure it's hard, David, with five children. I only had one, a very easy child. And so I just wanted to, I knew that along the way, I had often felt as if especially being in this world of finance and wealth management, I had often felt as if my own financial life wasn't as impressive as the people, as the other people that were my age. And I, I constantly had to remind myself that I had been walking a very different path than they had all the way up to that point. And so, you know, for example, I didn't even start saving until 38 when I graduated with my PhD and finally got my first real gig at Morningstar. That was when I was finally able to put into practice everything that I had learned about money. And from there, it's not like I was perfect 
from day one. So it was, it was for me, uh, sort of a love letter to my past self for saying, Hey, you did a great job. You got through this. And also to the people who are hustling right now, uh, to, try to live lives they love while also setting their children up for success. And if you're the only earner in a household, that is a lot. It's a lot of pressure and uh, a lot of work. So thank you for sharing that. And so many things that you said just elicited similar feelings that I've had over the years. And, you know, I guess it's just human nature, right? We always compare ourselves to our peers and we ascribe different levels of success in different areas to what we think other people are doing better or different. And, and uh, you know, we're all, we're all just works in progress, right? But, um, you know, there are pressures on all parents. But, but again, you know, having that primary or sole responsibility for rearing children and planning for their future, I'm sure must feel tremendously overwhelming in your work, have you found any financial or investing trends that seem to be more common for single parents, ways that advisors can be more proactively helping their single parent clients move forward and, and, and gain that financial stability that we're all looking for? Well, I can't say that I've seen any systematic trends or data to that effect, but I can, as I alluded to earlier, you know, or or just mentioned earlier, my own career choice to not go into the startup space, for example, to not be an entrepreneur or take position take a position at at a young innovative startup somewhere. You know that that those the desire to create stability for my daughter influenced my career choices. It influenced my professional um, track. It does for a lot of parents. Um, I think that there are many risks that people don't take. Even things like asking for a promotion may feel too scary to people who feel like, well, if they stick their neck out and get shot down, then are they going to, you know, are they actually weakening their position? People wanting to maybe try things, start things, do more, take more risks, be more innovative, possibly earn more as a result. And yet, if you've got dependents in the mix and you are the only, and you don't have diversity in your income streams, if your salary is the only income stream you've got, then, you know, the the, it does really limit for a lot of us the risks that we're willing to take. It I don't know. I think it would be interesting to see if there's any correlation between single parenthood and risk preference in investment. But I do also know that there's two sort of there's a spectrum of risk preference, but there's two general ways that people try to kind of get control when they don't feel they have control or when they're afraid. And so myself, I went toward the stability end of things 
my ex-husband is the opposite. He went toward the risk taking and creating, you know, he started many companies and um, went through, you know, the funding and the the elation and the money making and then the collapse and the ups and downs of startups in the hopes that there would be a big payoff. And so risk seeking behavior is often that response to the unknown and saying, well, I want to give my children the best. And so I'm going to roll the dice to see if I can hit it big. And so in my, you know, my response to that was that since he was rolling the dice, I felt I couldn't. And so I, I think that parents in general, you know, we have different approaches to whether we take that risk seeking approach to I, I, I'm not going to get wealthy unless I roll the dice. Some people feel that way and they'll take exorbitant risk. And then other people will feel like I can't risk anything and they won't uh, invest at all or they'll invest too conservatively. And at the root of both of those things is a fear of not having enough. So when we started planning for today's conversation, I, I started with the idea in my head that our conversation would be solely focused on what advisors can do in support of their single parent clients. But as we were talking, the conversation quickly evolved into the challenges that many parents, both single and dual parents, have when thinking about how appropriately to support their children financially and whether many of them or us are doing too much. Um, one of the areas we discussed specifically, I remember, was was paying for college and the guilt mm -hmm. that can come in and accompany those decisions that parents make in terms of funding it. You know, am I a good parent if I don't pay for it all? Or is it fair for me to require that my children take on loans? Or should, should I foot the bill even if it means that I've got to take out a loan because I don't have enough cash to fund it? I mean, I think all of these scenarios take place very frequently and, and I'm sure financial advisors see them. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, have you had any conversations about that and the psychological hurdles that we all have when trying to, to make that big of an investment in our children? Yes. Um, I remember specifically a woman I, I spoke with who um, she was a friend and she was a, a lawyer in DC and she had gone through a divorce and we were talking one night uh, about retirement because I'm super fun to talk to because I talk about <laughs> retirement at parties. And um, anyway, so we were talking and, and um, she, we we're talking about, you know, understanding how much you, you need in order to retire. And, and here she is, she's this lawyer in DC. She's, um, she's rocking her career and um, and she said, oh, I'm never going to be able to retire. I've got three boys to put through school. And I said, I, what I heard in that was a couple of things. I heard, first of all, that she feels an obligation to pay for her children, her children's education through college. And second of all, that she has prioritized that obligation over her responsibility to herself to fund her own retirement. And so I asked her, I said, do you believe that a good parent pays for college? 
And she's like, mm-hmm. yes, my dad paid for my school. Don't you feel crushed by student loans? And I said, well, you know, not really. I'm one of the lucky ones because I can afford the payments. Um, and it, But sh- I know she's not alone in this, this belief that a good parent pays for college. And so I, I think it's really important for us. It, it's a very common uh, belief, I think, but it's also just illustrative of how we have narratives in our mind. We we have stories that we walk around with about what certain financial decisions and behaviors mean about us personally as people, um, ethically, values-wise, how doing certain things or not doing certain things finan- with our money reflects on us as a person. And in this case, she believed that if she didn't pay for her three boys to go through college, that she would have failed them as a parent. And so I really wanted to help her to understand that, you know, a good parent is that can't pay for college, doesn't pay for college, and they're still a good parent. There are so many good parents out there that don't fund their children all through school, even when they have the money and it wouldn't hurt them financially to do so. And so I, when I was at Morningstar, I teamed up with Christine Benz and um, David Blanchett to write an article on where we we debunked a bunch of myths about college, college funding in particular, things like that you know, giving that kids who don't have to work during college are better off because they can focus just on their education. Well, research actually shows that that's not true, that that kids who work 20 hours a week or less on campus actually are more engaged, they get better grades, and they're happier after college, and they have higher life satisfaction after college than their peers who had who didn't have to work. And so there are... It, other also, you know, the myth that any kind of college debt is just going to consume your life. And we see it in the news all the time that students are just overwhelmed with school debt. And many people are because they've borrowed far more than their careers after graduation can afford uh, to pay back. And, you know, the there is a calculus that you can do to figure out how much you can borrow and still have that student loan payment be um, very manageable given the career that you have after. So there are ways to help your children get through college that don't all require you just forking out money. So Sarah, you've mentioned my five children, and yes, my wife and I are exhausted. But nonetheless, as a parent, of course, There were days where we were quite proud of how we were doing. And then, of course, there were other days in which I questioned decisions that we had made on our kids' behalf. And I'm sure that, especially with college, it may be hard as an advisor to have that frank discussion with clients. I mean, I'm trying to think if my advisor had that discussion, especially when it was talking about what it is out of reach financially for us. How do you coach your advisor clients on having these types of discussions with their clients and should they be happening well in advance of the first tuition bill? Yeah, the the technique that I think helps is um, offering different narratives, but doing it 
subtly. And so you don't need to, you know, ask them, you know, as frank as I was with my friend and saying, do you believe a good parent pays for college? You may not need to do that. Just, you know, if you're training your ear to listen for the underlying assumptions that clients have, you know, anytime that, like I said, self-sabotage, financial self-sabotage happens when two or more needs, human, deep human needs are in conflict with one another. And so in this case, there's the need for long-term security and safety on the part of the individual is conflicting with their need to, you know, connect and love and and have self-esteem and self-respect. And so you can find all these needs on Maslow's hierarchy, but you have to help them find a way to meet all of those needs. And often it's simply in the narrative. So if you know that someone is likely falling prey to an unhealthy narrative, which is a good parent pays for college. And that's unhealthy because it's very prescriptive about a certain specific behavior. A good parent also, a good parent sets a great example of financial responsibility to their children. A good parent prepares their children for the realities of the economic world that they are facing. A good parent is honest about their own strengths and weaknesses and is able to face challenges head on. And so by modeling the courage to look at your own financial limits and then find solutions so that the child, you know, the parent can model great financial behavior by helping sit down and problem solve with the child to figure out what combination of scholarships and loans and savings and financial aid and whatever else they're going to use to get them through college the advisor can simply model narratives that are healthier. So dropping little nuggets in the conversation about college and it becomes clear that there's a conflict between retirement readiness and paying for education, being able to say, look, you know, what I see here on your balance sheet is that there's, um, you know, you're, you will sacrifice your own financial stability if you choose to to make it easy on your your kids right now and that may not be the best example to set for them financially finding a way to help them recognize that what they do is is what that their actions their children are watching their actions and not just saying thank you for giving me everything our kids are really better served when we show them how we overcome our own challenges through creative problem solving. That prepares them to face their reality. Just making everything easy for them, paying their way, that's not preparing them to solve any of their own problems in the future. So Sarah, I, you know, I, of course with college, but even in other things, I, I've seen people in my circle of life that it, it that seemed to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but they seem to have overextended themselves in support of children. Maybe it was the the travel sports team where they were gone every weekend for 10 years and paying for hotels that they maybe couldn't afford or whatnot, or it's college. But a, a number of them have made comments to me, kind of tongue-in-cheek, tongue but I think that there's 
there's a bit of reality where they say and laugh, you know, yeah, I'm not going to have any money in my retirement because I've already spent it on the sports team or college or whatever. But, you know, I guess they'll just have to take care of us in retirement. And and I wonder if that really is the expectation or if they're just trying to be funny. And while I do know that for many cultures, this is historically how things work, and it's just part of that ingrained culture. I'm curious about your thoughts about people who believe that it's okay to spend more than maybe they should because they expect that when they need the money in their older years that their children will step up and, and handle it all. Yeah, well, so it's okay to have that expectation if the other person is on board with it. Um, if if it is a part of your culture and it's something that the other person has readily agreed to do. But if you are simply assuming that because you provide for them that they will provide for you, then what you are doing is setting yourself up for a world of hurt and resentment and a really um, unhappy relationship with that adult child later on. And so because they truly are under no obligation to do that, and if they feel that you're putting emotional expectations on them or putting financial expectations on them later in life when they're trying to raise their own children, what you're doing is you're setting them up to, to be sandwiched between taking care of their children, taking care of their own retirement needs, and taking care of you. And um, the way I think about it is that you know you can either – Put the burden on your children when they are young and full of human capital and energy and enthusiasm and passion for life um, and let them take on some loans when they're in their 20s and have decades to pay them off. Or you can put the burden on them in their 40s and 50s when they have children and obligations and mortgages and uh, retirement accounts that they're trying to fund on their own. And which one of those two scenarios do you think is going to strain the relationship the most? So I think that a lot of times it comes down to rethinking the narrative, the story that we're telling ourselves about how our financial behavior is going to affect our relationships with our children. You think giving them everything now is going to make your relationship wonderful later. There are plenty, plenty of examples um, to the contrary. And I don't know a whole lot of examples where I, I can't name <laughs> any people who um, who have felt like, you know, oh, my parents did everything for me and now they expect me to take care of them and I'm so pleased with it. Um, usually it takes more of the form of my parents did everything for me and now I feel obligated to have the career they want for me and live the life they want for me. And I'm struggling with depression because I can't find my own identity because my parents have put me in this position to take care of them. And I feel that I must because they've sacrificed everything for me. So now I have to sacrifice my life for them. Those are not healthy dynamics between parent and child. Helping your child to be equipped to earn more, to find resources, to find scholarships, to find jobs, to earn and to provide for themselves and being their biggest cheerleader while they do that, helping them to fly 
that's not the same as flying for them. You don't have to move their wings. And one of the things that I think is a really good rule of thumb is when it comes to understanding the difference between financial support and financial enablement. And I think this is especially true of adult children, adult, um, non-dependent, like, you know, they don't have physical um, or or mental reasons to be dependent, but adult children who are, are parents who are financially enabling their adult children. I think the really easy way to understand if it's enablement or support is you should never work harder at their financial success than they do. Wow. That's really good. That's, um, you know, and we've really focused on one particular conversation and coaching. And, but I know that these, these can be really transformational for an advisory practice. Are there other common scenarios where you see using this type of behavioral strategy work? Well, I think that what we're talking about is, like I said earlier, it's a deeper type of discovery. It's a kind of conversation that you have with clients that instead of, um, instead of just focusing on the financial goals, you're digging deeper to figure out, you know, the, um, the deeper motivations behind financial behavior. And I do want to say this isn't the kind of um, financial, I, I think of it as coaching more than advising, but it's not the kind of, of coach, this coaching isn't for everyone. And not all of your clients will be open to this kind of conversation. But for the few that are, if you knock on the door with a question or two or a, a thought uh, in this vein, and they're open to it, now you have the chance to truly change a life. But you have to be able to recognize when people are are open to re open to new ideas, open to new ways of thinking about their money. And if they're truly looking for a, a solution or if they're just looking for a vent. And that's really, I mean, that's a, a skill that you learn over time, you know, by by feeling it out with different people. But the few people that really are able to open up and say, wow, yes, I would love to find a new approach to this. Um, yes, I'm willing for you to ask me a couple of uncomfortable questions if you think that it might help me get to a better answer. Now you've gotten into a conversation that, again, you have the opportunity to possibly change a life there, and that's going to be your client forever. Yeah, and having been in this industry for a while myself, I know that there's you're talking about the client having an issue. Well, there's a lot of advisors who have historically been primarily focused on investment management. So the idea of doing like this behavioral strategy stuff, that might feel a little bit overwhelming. Uh, so I want to close with two questions. To begin to employ this as a more standard practice within a firm, what should advisors be thinking about really as a first step? And should they be looking at hiring different talent even, and not to be self-serving, but even contracting with someone like yourself to help them? Yeah. So I think that there's there's a great new book out called Wealth 3.0 by uh, Jim Grubman and Dennis Jaffe and Kristen Keffler. And um, it's a fantastic overview of how uh, financial psychology has matured as a profession over the last 30 or 40 years. And so I think that's a great resource for advisors in beginning to understand sort of the core competencies that the future of wealth management 
will require of advisors. And these, what we tend to think of as soft skills are really communication skills. They're, mm. um, you know, it, we think of EQ, emotional intelligence, as being something that you either have or you don't. That's not true. It can be trained. And emotional intelligence is a skill that financial advisors of the future will really need to be adept in. And so there are some really great resources to train your emotional intelligence, train your understanding of, like I mentioned earlier, very simple but widely applicable frameworks from psychology where you don't need to be a psychologist, but being able to understand why your clients are doing or saying what they are within a framework. If you have a framework, then you have an approach. It's a way to understand people that then you can figure out what the next step in working with them might be. Without a framework, you're flying blind. So there, I would, I would also recommend the CFP board um, put out last year a new curriculum in financial psychology. Um, so there is a book that you can get on that. And that is required training now for any new CFP is this this large module on financial psychology. But that gives you an overview of some of the frameworks from psychology that you might want to be familiar with, as well as some um, sort of case study um, conversations that typical conversations that you might end up in and how to recognize that framework in action in that conversation. Wow. Well, Sarah, you're always a fount of great information and I'm sure we could talk for hours more, but it has been a real pleasure to have you on today's podcast. Thank you for coming back. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be here. If you're an advisor and would like to know more about Sarah and Thrive Financial Empowerment, please visit www.thrive-financial.net. That's T-H-R-I-V-E-financial.net, or simply follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to The Flexible Advisor. We created this show for advisors to help them grow their business. If you like this podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating and most importantly, sharing our podcast with other advisors. For myself and Laura Gregg, we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us on today's episode of The Flexible Advisor. Thank you for listening to The Flexible Advisor podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds or Northern Trust. All investments involve risk, including possible loss of principal. Before investing, carefully consider the FlexShares investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus and a summary prospectus, copies of which may be obtained by visiting www.flexshares.com. Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Foresight Fund Services, LLC Distributor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Although we attempt to keep the information complete and current, we do not warrant that the content herein is accurate, complete, or current. We make no commitment to update the content herein. 
it is your responsibility to verify any information before relying on it. The content of this podcast may include technical inaccuracies. We may make changes in the products and or services described herein at any time. We provide you this information with the understanding that we are not rendering accounting, legal, or tax advice. Please consult your legal or tax advisor concerning such matters.